You're listening to Jesus Walks on Wall Street, where real people working in the finance industry talk about life, work, and faith, with your host, Pastor Nathan Hart. Emily Dries is Managing Director and Market, Market Executive at Bank of America Private Bank. Welcome to the podcast, Emily. Thank you, Nathan. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And I have a question that's probably more important than anything else I'm going to ask you. <laughs> okay. How do you pronounce your last name? Ah, uh, yes. Well, there is a little bit of a story here. Okay. Uh, so the correct pronunciation is Dries. But more often than not, people say Dreas, yes. you know, with a nice European flair. And mm-hmm. I never correct you because, mm-hmm. frankly, it just sounds, sounds a lot nicer. better. And, yeah. you know, it wasn't my name to begin with. So <laughs> I feel like I can do that. Chad's okay with it, too. Yeah. <laughs> so Dries, it's funny because every time I hear you reference, people are like, oh, Dreas. And I go, it's actually Dries. And they look at me and they're like, no, it's Dreas. I'm like, I've heard her say Dries. So, well, no matter how we pronounce your last name, welcome. Thank you so much for spending this time with me and exploring life, work, and faith. I love it. I want you to describe your role, managing director, market executive at a private bank. Can you describe that for us? Sure. So uh, private bank, we're one of the many groups within Bank of America. Uh, Private banking goes way back, you know, uh, in the day as far as being able to provide lending and credit and deposit pricing, uh, asset management, being able to invest clients' portfolios help them with business transitions. So we're one business unit under this big umbrella. I've been in private banking almost my whole career. Mm and started out in asset management. And my role is to represent one of 40 markets across the United States and covering that for our clients and our teams. We're about a group of about 80 people here in Southern Connecticut. Okay. So, you know, when I first saw the phrase private bank, I kind of thought this is like the brick and mortar bank on the corner where I can go have a private bank account. But it's actually not that, right? So it's you're talking about, isn't it like high net worth individuals who put their assets in your funds? And it's th- those are basically your clients, not the person at the ATM. Yes, but you know, the person at the ATM might just as well be a private bank client. Mm-hmm. And we all start out somewhere, mm-hmm. right? And yep. so we often say that it's just the evolution within a bank. So you start out at your more of your uh, retail mm-hmm. commercial bank, and then... Once you get an asset level of about $3 million is when we uh, would love to have you as a private bank client. So I'm not going to exactly put $3 million into the ATM. I'm going to (laughs) come see you once I have that amount. I'm going to come invest that or more in what you guys are doing. And you're going to help that money grow for me. Exactly. Okay. Among many, many other things. Okay. Got it. I understand. Now, you have a, a bit of a unique journey. You grew up actually in this area, didn't you? Yes. Grew up in New Canaan. Right here in the New York City metropolitan area, full of the Wall Street demographic, so to speak. But you had a unique experience during the summers, I think. Tell us a little bit about what that was. Sure. So my mom was an immunologist with Duke University. Um, She didn't quite finish her PhD, but she was involved with Duke and certainly worked for them. She did a lot around tissue typing and figuring out different disease strands. And early on in her 20s, she was told to go out uh, to Indiana and Wisconsin and look at the Amish because there were so many diseases they didn't have uh, mm-hmm. that we suffered from. And then there were others like muscular dystrophy mm. and family line things that they did. And she was 22. She looked like she was 12. <laughs> and they just took her in. <laughs> and she loved it. And she loved the family. She loved the faith that these families had. And so, and it's a big part of the reason why she had six kids. 
Mm. Um, you know, their average number of children was around 11 at that point in time. And so we grew up on those farms every summer. That's what we did. (laughs) Other friends went to Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard. We went out to the farm, but uh, it was awesome. And each of us would be dropped off at a different family that we had just gotten really close to, spoke the language eventually, uh, milked the cows in the morning. And uh, some of them are some of my closest friends today. Amazing. So here's this New York City suburb kid spending her summers with the Amish. I just can't even imagine, like, when you showed up back, You, I mean, you went to, like, expensive private school here in town. When you got back in September, hanging out with your private school friends, they didn't exactly have summers like that. What do you think was forming and shaping in you by spending those summers with the Amish that was different than your peers? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. For the longest time, I wanted to be Amish. And my Amish grandma, who we just called her that because we were with her all the time, she said, Emily, you, you would never fit in. <laughs> it was pretty offensive to me. Um, but I think she meant it out of a total place of endearment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are set codes for mm-hmm. men and women. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've <laughs> never been very good about <laughs> keeping to them. And she really just, you know, the faith that they all have uh, is just absolutely incredible. And you think it must be brainwashing, right? Just in terms of the type of right. community yeah. and the rules and yeah. the shunning and, and all these things. And you think, gosh, it must just be brainwashing. But when you're there and you're with these people, it really is out of the most deepest part of their heart and this belief. And it's what keeps them together. And I'm talking good, strong marriages. Of mm. course, I'm sure there are some that have issues, but I'll be honest. I never came across any. And my wow. friends today who I grew up with, mm. their marriages are awesome. Um, still fight, still everything else the rest sure. of us do. But yeah. it's, you know, we're going to come out of this at a place of peace, you know. Yeah. And I think that has always been instilled in myself and my siblings. What, I'm just curious, what's your view of technology when you go hang out with the Amish and there's really no technology there? How do you now, you know, live in this environment raising kids with iPads and all that stuff. Just talk to me about that. Yeah. So um, it's probably why I'm still, though born in 1980, act like I was born in, you know, 1950, because Mm -hmm. I uh, am not that tech savvy. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, I'm using phones and and all of that. But again, I've been months with just peace, right? Mm -hmm. And not Mm -hmm. having any of that. And so I think what it really teaches all of us. And we're all learning this, right? The whole sleep yep. revolution, everything else. You got to turn it off. Yep. You got to create your own boundaries. And I'll say Chad's done a better job with this because he actually understands technology <laughs> and has the circle in our house and turns all the tech oh, off nice. and for yep. hours at a time, yep. right? So he's definitely monitoring all that. But um, it just, you know, as much as we can in these crazy lives, creating space and peace yep. and, and yep. simple, you know, yep. quietness. And you have that reference point of a whole community of people who don't use it at all. Yeah, they seem to be okay. Yeah, they seem to be doing just fine. In fact, thriving, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, tell me how you got into the world of finance and and, um, you said you've been in private banking your whole career. Tell me how you stumbled into this. Sure. So uh, in full disclosure, uh, my father worked for uh, Mm -hmm. Citigroup back in the day Mm -hmm. and he was on uh, the commercial side, he was on the private bank side. He was kind of the the project fixer of anything Mm -hmm. that, that went wrong. And when we would argue about evenings out with my friends. He would just say exasperated lawyer or a banker, like pick one. Yeah. And um, so it was always something that obviously was familiar to me growing up here. And I even found a, a funny story of what I wanted to be when I grew up, when, when I grew up. And it was a picture of me at a teller line 
And I don't know if that was the unlimited lollipops, but I think (laughs) my point just being like way back when there was something in me that loved the idea of finance. Hmm. And I certainly loved working. Uh, I was working at 12 after church, harassing people to bring me to their office and help them file. So I loved making money. (laughs) and Mm -hmm. I certainly uh, loved the idea of finance. When I graduated, um, Chad and I were already married. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty unusual, but um, he, he was already when you graduated undergrad? When I graduated college, okay. yep. yep. And uh, so I followed him to, he was stationed in Kings Bay, Georgia. So I just Googled Jacksonville, Florida and investment banking. And one company came up. Mm-hmm. And I called them and I said, I'd love to have a job. And they introduced me to this gentleman that had just spun out a company. And uh, it was asset management, which just means that we're all we're doing in asset management is managing portfolios. We're not doing any of the banking and the credit that a private bank does, but similar, similar field. And they had 12 guys, 400 million under management. He said, sure, come on in, come help me, come help me sell our our asset management portfolios. And, you know, those early uh, days, I think, ended up being better than any New York City analyst job I could have gotten. I was right. one person. We had yep. a minimum of a million bucks. I had the best coach in the world. And I can remember him sitting down trying to teach me about portfolios and performance and analytics and risk. And finally, he just said, you know what? He was about 65 at the time. He said, Emily, this is A1A. Just, just take this performance here in front of you and just go down A1A and just knock on all the lawyer and doctor offices and just bring us an account. Okay, you know, you'll come back with some questions, you know, feel free, but um, this is just, just go out and do it. It's the Mm -hmm. best way to kind of get it done. Well, at the end of the week, I brought home a $6 million defined benefit plan and his mouth just dropped. (laughs) And he said, how on earth did you do this? Mm -hmm. I never actually expected you (laughs) to bring in an account. And what I found in that week, Mm -hmm. right, I probably, you know, maybe 20 knocks a day, five actually took the the door. And it wasn't about the performance. It was about, you know, what isn't working with your defined benefit today. Mm-hmm. And nine times out of 10, the issues were, Emily, we have no one coming in here and teaching us mm. about the different investments or what it means for our people, for our employees. Yeah. Uh, we have no one educating our folks on how to create a portfolio based mm-hmm. on their age and their retirement goals. And so really early on, I had a great education and learning that, Sales is not about selling right. a product. It's about solving issues for people. Interesting. And that personal touch. Yes. Yeah. You showed up, right? Yeah. Yeah. You always got to show up. That's, right. that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but then it's really understanding what's the problem that that particular client is having. And it sounds like you are probably still applying the things you learned then, even today. Yes. Even though now, you know, you're a, dire- you're a managing director. Is it harder now that you're a managing director to have that personal touch with the clients? Um, I'd say yes and no. I think, um, you know, as a, as a manager and as a leader, you're always conscious of your team mm-hmm. and the folks that uh, support those clients day to day and really being able to back them up. But I don't think I've lost the client connectivity because mm-hmm. it's what gets me up every morning, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I always love to say, you know, with all the different business lines that we have, when you deal with just businesses, you can kind of put different types of businesses together, you know, healthcare, technology, they might have similar issues. The most awesome thing about private clients is every single client has completely different set of issues and questions and concerns. And Mm -hmm. so it's, it's ever flowing in terms of the change and being dynamic and finding different solutions for different clients, which makes it really fun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We've talked about your 
experience with the Amish and that being a reference point that I find just so fascinating. But also you're a person of faith. You're a person who goes to church on Sunday and you're in leadership at your church and you're raising your kids in the faith. And I know your husband is, is a man of faith as well. How do you view your faith playing out in your day-to-day role in this industry? Yeah. So I would say that it's an evolution. I think that so much of my management style has come from my faith. Mm. And I'll give you specific examples. Mm -hmm. Um, But early on in my 20s, um, you know, I'm someone who's very social and would love to go out. I was working in London now at the time um, and just covered pretty much all of uh, Southern Europe. So Greeks, Italians, uh, Spanish. Um, That was kind of the set of private bank clients that I covered at the time um, while I was a a product specialist in asset management. And, you know, oftentimes with my colleagues, I was the only Christian at that point in Mm -hmm. time with Mm -hmm. my group. Mm -hmm. But it was was a loving thing. You know, they knew Mm -hmm. I was, and they'd sometimes make jokes. For example, we had uh, Jesus Ruiz was on our team in, Mm -hmm. in Spain. And written on the email, they were trying to figure out what team Jesus was on. <laughs> and without letting two seconds go by, my manager writes right back, goes, pretty sure he's always on Emily's team, <laughs> right? Like, so it was a very comfortable thing. But, mm-hmm. you know, the thing I regret mm-hmm. big time is that when my colleagues would ask me about my faith mm-hmm. and they were really curious, mm-hmm. it was always late night, right? Mm-hmm. Early mornings. The night had passed. You were waiting to get, get home or wherever you were. You done. You were done with your dancing. And I always said, let's talk about that, you know, tomorrow mm-hmm. or during the day mm-hmm. or over a cup of coffee, not over a drink, you mm-hmm. know. And mm-hmm. I, I really regret that because mm-hmm. they never asked me during the day. Right. Yeah. And that was never when they wanted to hear it. Those were those windows of opportunity. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, didn't, um, I didn't take them up as much, you mm-hmm. know. And so now as a, a manager and a leader, I am very conscious of... Uh, the inclusiveness that Mm -hmm. Jesus taught. And I Mm -hmm. don't know that our church families here in America always act that way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if anything, I am overly trying to say that my faith is one that is inclusive of everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, my heart burns for the LGBT community. And I know Mm -hmm. if Jesus was here today, that is exactly who he would be loving because Mm -hmm. it's a group that definitely feels that way. We had gentlemen, you know him, that Mm -hmm. was in our Bible study Tuesday nights at Mm -hmm. 830 for six months before he even shared that, that he was gay. And mm-hmm. I just thought, how could you not tell mm-hmm. us? Why would you think I'd think any differently? Yeah. You know, and that, that frustrates me, certainly yeah. from, from just the, quote, religious mm-hmm. church. But I think as a leader, um, you know, there's a lot of my faith that's embedded in how I deal with people, mm-hmm. how I make decisions. And it's certainly part of all my prayers when the tough decisions really come. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we certainly have a reputation, don't we, Christians in America, for having our mindset on certain things and not being accepting. Yeah. I love what you just said a minute ago. Picture who would Jesus be hanging out with if he was here today, and he'd be hanging out with the people that are outcast. Yeah. Right? Like, that's where we'd find him. That's where he spent a lot of his time when he was here on earth. So I, I love the way your heart beats, where you have, a heart, you have just a really a, um, a love for people who have been left out. And that's because you know and love Jesus. Yeah. And you're trying to go where he would go. That's really cool. What other workplace issues do you think about and face in relationship to your faith? 
So, uh, you know, a couple examples. Um, you know, the one thing that I have always said um, is that I'm not a super competitive person. You say that in a finance room and you might get shot. Because <laughs> they need you to be competitive. They want you to be competitive yeah. 100%. But I was, the, you know, I was picking daisies on the lacrosse field <laughs> as a high schooler, right? But I think the, my comment that I always say is you don't have to lose for me to win. Right. Not a zero-sum game, right? It is not a zero-sum game. And there are so many examples of this where someone will come in super aggressive and have their playbook of what they want. And when you just step back and you say, you know what, what if we look at this from a totally different angle? Hmm. And all of a sudden, I just made them actually even a better offer than mm -hmm. they had even come in with. Mm -hmm. But it was a very different offer. Mm -hmm. And now it's something where you can look collectively and say, this is the best for the client, mm -hmm. right? Or this is the best for this particular situation. And I think having that just centeredness, like my identity is not my job. Mm. My identity is Jesus. Hmm. And making sure that for my time here on this earth yeah. that I am following where he needs me to follow. And it doesn't yeah. mean that I don't screw up all the time and make serious mistakes, yeah. but I own them. And I would hope that I'm in a place consistently that's being willing to hear when yeah. other people need to tell me that I've screwed up. You just shared something so amazing and it's actually come up on a number of these interviews that I've done for this podcast, where when people understand that their identity is not in the bottom line of their firm that year or the success of their deals that they're making right now, but it's actually in this other thing, this thing, this person of Jesus, it actually frees you up, I think, to be a much better worker, right? Because you can, like you just said, you can take a step back and look at something in a, in a different way and say, you know what? I think we can all win here. Yeah. I don't have to crush you yeah. in order for me to win and you don't have to crush me. Like, so I love that. That's amazing. I, I'm just going to tell a quick story. Yeah. I, I heard um, there's a, a famous quarterback in the NFL that I love to follow because he went to my high school. And he tells this story of having his identity in Christ and not in football. And he realized it when he was back in college throwing for Michigan State. And he threw a game-ending interception to the other team. And it, it made them lose the game. And he was walking back to the sideline while like 40,000 people or whatever were upset with him. They were like literally like booing him. And he had this thought in that moment, thank God my identity is not in football. <laughs> because if it was, I would be so destroyed right now. Yeah. Right. Yep. And so I love that. It's sort of an analogy even in the business world. You can lose a deal. You can win a deal. You can make a lot of money. You can lose some. You can have your career change unexpectedly. But all, your core identity in Christ does not change. Yeah. And it allows you to handle the ups and downs of a pretty crazy industry. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm. Um, what else is on your mind in relation to faith and work? Or do you want to go in another direction and talk about um, marriage? Do you want to talk about raising kids in this environment? What's on yeah. your mind? Yeah. Um, you know, the one thing that I think a lot of uh, our church family knows is obviously Chad's story mm -hmm. and uh, what he went through. And Can you describe that for anybody who doesn't know? Sure. So, um, you know, my husband was working at McKinsey uh, for quite some time and um, traveling for four days a week and just really feeling pretty burnt out. A uh, whole other host of issues, which include three young children, <laughs> if mm -hmm. anyone's been through that. 
Um, I was also traveling three or four nights a week. And uh, he just had a total mental breakdown and really was at the brink. And I had no idea. He didn't tell me until maybe a year later after he was seeing a therapist. And thank goodness he went to see a therapist. And he's doing great now. And he's just a huge advocate for people that feel like they're, you know, go get he's your classic navy rotc yeah. i can do it on my own i don't need yeah. help and wasn't he a, like a submarine he's crushed captain? yeah yeah well submarine he he left after lieutenant okay. and then he went okay. to business school and then, and then went to mckinsey and i share this because even just this year uh our ceo was talking about some resources that we have at the firm to take mm-hmm. care of folks that are really feeling stressed out and when you really uncover our employee surveys and whatnot as far as where people are stressed out. It's the combination of work and home. Mm. It's never one in isolation, typically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's trying to figure it all out, right? People who are taking care of their parents now mm. and trying to manage them can be almost harder than young kids right now. Yeah. And so all those different factors and making sure that people have the resources, well, I just lost it because someone asked me something very pointed and I just said, you know, I haven't needed this resource, mm-hmm. but my husband did. Yeah. And I'm so happy that we have it here so that people know that it's that it's here. And I think, you know, for a lot of uh, folks, you know, just as far as raising young kids right now with the many demands that are on all of us, um, just really knowing the places that you can go to to mm-hmm. get help, I just mm-hmm. think is so critical. So let's just get really practical for a minute. Let's say somebody has had a really stressful work day. You know, they have some of these existential questions over their head. Are they going to make it in the industry? They've got difficult people that they're working with. They get on the train or they get in the car and they go home and they show up at their front door and they're maybe hoping for a moment of just rest and relaxation, but they come into the, into the house and maybe they see their spouse and there's some tension there and then the kids are causing chaos and there's some issue at school you got to figure out for the kid and it's just more anxiety there. Can you speak to that person who's maybe listening to this right now? What would you say to them? You need to tell your spouse, (laughs) 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 having been that spouse, Mm. um, because you only know what you you don't, you know, what you know. And uh, I would say that, you know, for Chad, he really just had to go and get professional help. And I guess if you're really at that brink, there are so many resources out there. Well, they'll even pay you if you don't have the money to do that Mm -hmm. or just don't want the... um, you know, we've got hope and renewal here Mm -hmm. in our own community, but Mm -hmm. definitely seek that out. And I would say, you know, for all of us that, that aren't aware, we got to meet people where they're at. Mm -hmm. Where I failed Chad was, I wasn't there for him. I was worried about my own career and my own work-life balance with the kids. And I wasn't listening to him. And that really hurt when he told me a year later that I wasn't even part of his recovery that was crushing. Mm, So, you know, from my standpoint, you do have to communicate, even if you have a hard spouse like me, (laughs) if you had told me that that's how you were really feeling, of course I would have just been completely taken aback and know that I need to change some things for whatever Mm. burdens I'm putting on him that I don't even realize. I feel like everybody walking around, even if they look like they have everything all put together, they're dealing with stuff. You know, and if we can all just kind of recognize that and say, I need help, you need help, let's go get help together. You mentioned Hope and Renewal. That's the Center for Hope and Renewal. It's a Christian counseling center right here in Greenwich. And I actually used to live right next door to it, (laughs) lived in the house right next door. And I learned a lot 
in the years that I lived there, a lot of people I noticed they would park their car and they would either be dressed in disguise or they would walk in such a way that nobody could see them going to, to the counseling center. And I realized I needed to start sharing more whenever I had the opportunity. I would tell people, oh, yeah, Nancy and I, we go see marriage therapists there. You know, all four members of my family have seen therapists at the center. Yeah. Right. Nancy and I are um, in counseling right now. Right. And I just like to share that. And sometimes when I share that with people, they, they kind of look scandalized. <laughs> I've had a few, I've, I've shared that in groups or whatever. And someone has pulled me aside after we're like, you okay? What's yeah. going on with you and Nancy? And I'm like, oh, uh, it's n- not that much, but we love talking to a therapist about our stuff. You know, she helps bring out the issues and help us get resolved. And I j- I'm trying to normalize therapy, Yeah, you know, for people. It seems to be this great intimidating mystery. So I'm glad you're bringing up Chad's journey. Um, I'm glad you're encouraging people to talk with yeah. their spouse, with a therapist, get help. And it's really cool to hear that the CEO of your company is trying to offer some of those resources as well for just recognizing that people need it. Yeah, it's a right. big part of every single time he gets up and talks. It's awesome. Hmm. What else is on your mind? Gosh, um, I don't know. I what, feel like we covered a lot. What do you do for fun? Ah, for fun. So uh, love to run, um, and that is fun for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's also part of my therapy. Mm-hmm. So it works d- two birds in one. We always try to find those, right? Um you know, right now, I think Chad and I are just loving our, the ages of our kids yeah. are just so easy. And that's yeah. why I always say young parents, like, please know mm-hmm. it's so hard it right better. now. It gets so much better. Yeah. Uh, they're 14, 11 and eight. And we're just having a blast. We're just mm. making use of every single weekend and, mm. you know, really just making a conscious, very hard conscious effort to do those blackouts yep. on their, all of our cell phones and just really dig in. And um, we're excited for the ski season mm-hmm. that's coming up. But um, we're just, we, we're, we're feeling very blessed that this is yeah. just a great piece as far as stage of life right now and yeah. just loving it. We feel the same way. It's funny. I've heard the phrase, the golden age of parenting. Yes. You know, which is kind of where we are, except you mentioned 14-year-old. I'm told that once you get into those ages, things get nuts, but it's going okay so far? So far, so good. If she's listening, so far, so good. (laughs) (laughs) You're doing great. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, Our son is is, uh, almost 12, and he's the age of your your middle Middle child. Middle one, yeah. He's showing little signs, strong signs of puberty and little signs of, <laughs> of, you know, teenage stuff. And it's, it's a little terrifying, you know, yep. all of a sudden these emotional outbursts, um, he's got a little mustache going on his Aww. upper lip and it's like, whoa, this is coming. This totally. is coming. But he's such a delightful kid like you. I just am enjoying them right now. Yeah. They're so fun to talk to and to watch their artwork and their schoolwork and their ideas. And they're becoming real, I don't want to say peers cause they're not my peer at all. But I'm seeing them grow into that a little bit. Yeah. And the rawness, I think, of their emotions and everything that they talk about right now, it's no different than when I get intimidated by something. Right. Right. At work. Yeah. But they'll just come out and say it. It's so refreshing. No filter. Yes. No kidding. (laughs) It's like, I don't want to go hang out with that group of girls. I don't know if they're going to like me. I want to be their friend, but Mm. I don't know if they're going to accept me. And I'm just laughing. Like, ah, just go in there. See what happens. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Not talking to you, mom. That's great. Well, Emily, thank you so much. I feel like we have shared a lot. And I think just sharing your story um, can be a real encouragement to people who are listening. So I really appreciate your time. Oh, of course. Thanks so much for having me. God bless. Same here. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Jesus Walks on Wall Street with your host, Pastor Nathan Hart. 